Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. Love is patient and kind. Love envies no one, is never boastful, never conceited, never rude. Love is never selfish, never quick to take offense. Love keeps no score of wrongs, takes no pleasure in the sins of others, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, its endurance. 1 Corinthians 13.4 These are probably the most famous of all the Pauline words in the New Testament, and very fitting for this week of Romanticism, thanks to Valentine's Day. This verse is usually included at the nuptials and carries a lot of weight, and if we really meditate on the way love is described by Paul, how many of us could honestly say we love everyone we're called to love in this way? Truly loving someone is to let them be themselves. Truly loving someone is seeing beyond their behavior and into the person of the child of God. With love there is nothing that cannot be achieved. The word love has been banded around so carelessly and not only in recent years. We love our food, our jobs, our music, our phones, our shoes. Can we apply all Paul's attributes to love used in these contexts? Our vocabulary is shrinking if we have to use this powerful word to express our shallow feelings towards material objects. What happened to preferring certain foods, appreciating our jobs, liking our music, using our phones a lot, being attached to our shoes, admiring our neighbor's car, wanting an iPod, or fancying a cup of tea? Love boils down to living the Christian life not a casual verb applied to everything we see or own. With Paul's words ringing in your your ears, let your mouth water at the thought of heart-shaped chocolates and your throat tingle in anticipation of the bubbly champagne. And let's learn how to love our beloved from the Lord. Love is patient and kind. Love envies no one, is never boastful, never conceited, never rude. Love is never selfish, never quick to take offence. Love keeps no score of wrongs, takes no pleasure in the sins of others, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, its endurance. I hope you know how much you are loved by God. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny. My guest this week is my southern gentleman who believes in love at first sight. You'll want to hear the full story straight from the lips of my romantic blue-eyed cowboy. I'm going to be sharing a story about how Christ's love prevails under unusual conditions and other romantic notions I may think of along the way. So put the kettle on and your feet up and join me for an hour of kisses and hugs across the way. Did you go out to dinner on Valentine's Day or are you saving it for this weekend? 
We're celebrating tonight with a special meal and my favourite beverage, followed by a gooey chocolate dessert only the Dutch know how to make, appropriately called goo. It is a melt-in-your-mouth treat that comes in a little glass ramekin and is ready to eat after only ten minutes in the oven. Heaven! There were lots of flowers sold for this holiday. I hope you were sent some. Men, including my blue-eyed cowboy, buy 70% of them. I personally love chocolates and cards, and luckily got both of those. My grandfather's middle name was Valentine. I always thought that was funny when I was young. Fancy being saddled with such a name. Joseph Valentine Bagley. Valentine's Day was such a big thing when I was an older teenager. We didn't do favours for each other in the classrooms when we were young, as they do in America. I didn't even think about the day until I was sixteen and had a boyfriend, or at least someone I would dare to send an anonymous card to. At boarding school we lived for mail, and this was the day when cards arrived with no signature and disguised handwriting on the envelopes, and maybe even posted from the far reaches of Britain so that the recipient was truly baffled and romanced. My brother and I would send each other a card and pretend it was from someone famous. Mine was Paul McCartney, and his was Candice Bergen. Bergman. Silly us. This continued until we were both finally married, and shouldn't have been receiving cards from secret admirers anyway. Let's put the secular feast away for a moment, and look at something a whole lot closer to Paul's meaning of the word love, and how Christians should live it out. Max Lucado tells this story, which I first heard in church told by my priest on one Sunday, and it fits in very well with the love is theme of my show. Near the city of São José dos Campos, Brazil, is a remarkable facility. Twenty-eight years ago, the Brazilian government turned a prison over to two Christians. The institution was run on Christian principles. With the exception of three full-time staff, everything else is run by inmates. Families outside the prison adopt an inmate to work with during and after his term, rather like godparents. Chuck Colson, famous for a non-profit organization called Prison Fellowship, visited the Brazilian prison and made this report. I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys, opened the gates, and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas, people working industriously. The walls were decorated with biblical sayings from Psalms and Proverbs. My guide escorted me to the notorious prison cell once used for torture. Today, he told me that block houses only a single inmate. As we reached the end of a long concrete corridor, and he put the key in the lock, he paused and asked, Are you sure you want to go in? Of course, I replied impatiently. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. Slowly he swung open the massive door, and I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell, a crucifix, beautifully carved by the inmates, the prisoner, Jesus, hanging on a cross. He's doing time for the rest of us, my guide said softly. The group who runs this prison and others like it is ACAP, or Association for the Protection and Assistance of the Convicted. In Spanish they call themselves Armando al Proximo Amaras a Cristo, loving your neighbor, you will love Christ. Each recuperando, as the inmates are called, has the opportunity to be able to experience being loved and being able to love. The philosophy behind the program is one of God's love for human beings as a father towards his prodigal sons awaiting their return. There are eleven 
10 men cells with three Christian representatives in each cell who maintain discipline, manage a competitive inter-cell points system, and monitor personal behavior. Each of the recuperandos is expected to be a guardian angel to new inmates sharing their love of Christ and eventually showing that although they no longer wear the outward signs of restraint, metal chains and shackles, they will eventually wear the inward sign, grace, by being chained to Christ by his love. Isn't that a powerful image? The prison, as I said, has a small chapel previously used as the maximum security punishment cell, which is kept open 24 hours a day. Above the altar is the crucifix, surmounted by the words Estamos Juntos, we are together. Often, during the lunchtime siesta in the maximum security patio area, as well as other times in the chapel, the recuperandos sit around with various musical instruments and sing songs and hymns. There are ten commandments displayed on a large notice board at the end of the prison's main corridor. The first one is, Love is a way of life and the last is God as the fount of all. How would it be if all prisons treated their inmates with this kind of respect? Yes, they are being punished, but they're still God's children, and it has been shown that recidivism <laughs> I've mispronounced that word, recidivism decreases dramatically when prisons are based on this model, the model of Christ's love. In this Brazilian prison, the repeat offender is less than 5%, compared to more than 40% in state-run prisons. Impressive. The ACAP model is in widespread use in Brazil and other South American countries, and it's in Texas, I was surprised to learn. It's a unit within a state-run facility. Go check this remarkable place out online. This is a perfect time to talk about my parents, who were very much in love. In fact, they were so much in love, they really and truly could only see the world around them through rose-tinted glasses. And when age and health and death caught up with them, they took their glasses off and retreated into the world of denial and disappeared. Here's their story, or at least as much as I know of it. My mother was 21 on Armistice Day, May the 8th, 1945, and she was working for the British Command Forces. Several steps up from her humble beginnings as a sweet shop girl at the young age of 14 and then a jeweler's assistant. Her job took her to Germany after the war as part of the conquering forces and in her uniform she cut a snazzy figure. My father was also working in London at the time and the story goes that he caught sight of a beautiful lady on a train platform as he was being shipped to Germany also as part of the conquering forces. He told us that he took one look at her and told a friend, that's the girl I'm going to marry. They were both stationed in Berlin, and my father would tell us what a sociable butterfly my mother was. My mother would tell us she didn't notice my father at first, but then he started showing up in places where he really shouldn't have been, fully kitted out in tennis whites when he couldn't hit a ball, or all togged up for downhill skiing when he should have been on the baby slopes. Needless to say, my mother was a good tennis player and a great skier. Understandably, my mother dismissed him as weird. He persisted, seeing her surrounded by friends in the mess and joining the conversation, though he was shy, and I wonder what he found to say. But love gives courage and makes a hero out of everyone. She started asking around about him, discovered he was hard-working, polite, respected, and steady, not to mention good-looking in his uniform, too. Her choice of companion up to now was daring officer material. 
She'd already lost boyfriends in some of the air attacks over London, so she knew how unsuitable some boys could be in the heartbreaking game of love. They began talking, but she told us that he hardly ever said anything. Love also strikes the afflicted dumb sometimes. Finally, she began praying to fall in love with him because she knew, deep down inside, that he was a good one to fall for. And then her prayer was answered, and the rest is history. A match made in heaven. Ah. Malia told me that her grandmother, my blue-eyed cowboy's mum, fell in love with her grandfather on a double date. No, not my blue-eyed Texan's mum, mum's grandfather, but Malia's grandfather on a double date. Anyway, it seems that she was dating a young boy for a few years. They were all of seventeen, and she went out on a double date with one of her girlfriends and fell for her friend's date. So. Don't go out on a date with your best friend. She may fall in love with your date. So anyway, Grandmama dumped her boyfriend and married the man who became my blue-eyed cowboy's dad. And they got married. I think she was seventeen or eighteen. They didn't date. They didn't date for very long. They got married when they were really, really young. But then I suppose the kids did get married when they were young back in those days. So, I've got to go on a short break now. So replenish your cupper, and grab yourself some kisses and hugs, and come right back for more in my love program. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. My guest this week is my blue-eyed cowboy who shared the homeschooling years with me whenever he wasn't out on the road as a tour manager for any number of impressive bands that got the children's interest a whole lot quicker than anything I was trying to do with them while he was around. Did Ozzy really bite the head off a bat is a must-know for young, impressionable teens, and my cowboy spent many a happy hour regaling them with wild and exciting stories from his life. Today, though, we're not going to be talking about his job. We've done that in a previous show. Go back and listen if you missed it. February the 25th, Rock and Roll Savvy. What are we going to be talking about? Love, of course. In case you hadn't guessed, my lovely Texan has a name, Larry. 
Hi, ho there, Hobson. Thanks for being here to talk about your favourite topic, smooches. Oh, and you. Smooching you. Smooching me. All right. First off, I'm just going to have to ask, how are you finding living here, in England that is, after being a visitor for so many years? Um... It's it's not a lot different because I'm familiar with the culture, but it's a lot different because every morning I wake up and I'm still here. Yeah. For years, I mean, I would come here and spend two or three weeks here or <clears throat> a month or so here touring or traveling around or, you know, in a hotel and all. But now all of a sudden, or when we came to visit family, but now all of a sudden we've been here seven months or so and... Mm-hmm. Every night I go to bed here and I still wake up here. It's uh, it's nice. I mean, it's it's civilized. It's not like we're living in a country where they don't speak the same language and all of that. Well, you um, wonder that sometimes as we're walking around. <laughs> well, sometimes I don't understand what they're saying, but then I'm not the one with the accent. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay. It's just, you know, I miss the kids a lot, and that's, that's hard. Yeah. yeah. Well... With so many, um, actually, where am I with my questions? Okay, so adjusting to life here, you're adjusting. What is the most difficult thing about adjusting to life here for you? Well, it's really, really cold right now. Yeah. Uh, it gets really dark. Uh, well, it's it's actually getting, the sun is staying up longer now. But, I mean, at the height of winter, it was getting dark at 4.15 in the afternoon, which I really dislike. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that, that I think there it's it's really a much more liberal uh, attitude on TV and in the just in the general attitude of people. I mean, as far as the language, the drinking, the promiscuous things that you you see and think about. I, I more so than America. I mean, I think America is pretty liberal. Uh, and but I you hear about it more. I think I think because we actually travel on the public transport, on the buses and the trains and the tubes and all, we see it more. Whereas in America, we're living in a car, or, you know, we're driving everywhere in an automobile, and so you're isolated and you don't interact, or you don't hear other people interacting nearly as much. Mm. And I find I find it kind of depressing sometimes knowing that you know the young people are out there and. Is, some of them don't seem to have any hope, you know. Uh, but, the, you know, that's there are good parts about it, you know. And we have we've made some great friends. We've got some good people we know. Uh, mm-hmm. We found a great church with a great choir. And, you know, those things make it all worth it. Uh, having Malia here is helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, having, nice. having Skype is probably the best thing about, you know, having traveled at this day and age. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I I agree with you. I've noticed um, that we are much more involved in other people's lives, whether we want to be or not, because we're actually on the street or in the trains. We actually can hear their conversations, whereas when you're in a car, as you say, they're having conversations in their car and you're not privy to them. So, you know, we hear the other side of the phone conversation if somebody's on the phone in the train or if several people are, and they don't seem to tone that down and they don't seem to lower their voices. They just yell into their phones as if they're there on their own you know we're all 
kind of um, you know sort of treated to that. But it would be the same in any big city, New York, Boston, probably. You know, I think so. Where there's a walking culture, I think. Well, and also you see, I mean, one thing you see here, which I find really interesting, walking down the high street and the, the shops and all of that, there you see a lot of older people, uh, older than we are, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, little gray-haired old ladies and old men with canes and ladies with walkers. Mm-hmm. And I guess there are that many of them around in America and Dallas and the areas where we live and visit. But they're probably all traveling in cars or being driven around somewhere. They're not actually walking the streets. And these people can take a bus or, you know, walk up to the high street, but they're walking up there using their walker. Mind you, it's, you know, 20 degrees outside and they're out there walking. But uh, maybe that's what keeps them so spry is because of the cold air and, you know, the low amount of bacteria in the air or something i don't know yeah well i've always said we love to get out we like the fresh air and uh you laugh at that but there you know there might be some good in that well you vivian, vivian goes for a walk every day <laughs> an hour's walk every day rain sleet or snow it doesn't matter yep regardless of whether whether we've been out any other place yeah. yep mm-hmm. well you mentioned our wonderful church at the bottom of the road and um, we are going to be talking a little bit about how um, you and I met, but that'll come in the next segment. What I wanted to ask you, though, um, how important do you think is a shared faith and praying together in um, a married life? I think it's critical. I think that you've got to be on the same page in every aspect or most every aspect. You don't always have to agree on every little uh, innuendo of, of everything, but I, I think that you've got to go to church together. I think you have to raise your kids together. I, th- you know, we enjoy going shopping together, and you know, there are times when we don't, when we're busy or doing other things, and we don't get to do those things. But I think, you know, when we met, I hadn't been to church for a while, twenty-seven years ago, only because I mean, I was on the road all the time and. You know, I always, I guess, found an excuse not to go. And we met, and, you know, uh, I'm, I pride myself on the fact that ever since you and I met, because of your influence, I guess, is, uh, you know, I don't think I've missed a Sunday of church since then. Uh, I, have a, I never was without God, so I wasn't reborn, but, uh, you know, I just went back to church and found a purpose there. Uh, And even the times that I've gone back on the road while we've been married, I would do things instead of, you know, sleeping in on a Sunday morning. I would, no matter where I was, I can remember in Thailand and Indonesia and places like that, I would seek out a church, a Catholic church, if nothing else, uh, and, and go to it. I remember in Japan, I was doing a project for Nike over there. I was there for a month, and it was a Sunday, the first Sunday I was there. And I wanted to find a church, and, and not, I've been to Japan a lot. Not many people speak English, but I was asking them where a church was. And they pointed, and, and so I was looking around, and, and all of a sudden I saw a cross on top of a building. And I got close, and I realized it was a hospital. And I went in, and nobody spoke English. And they, I did the sign of the cross and with my fingers, and they pointed upstairs. So I went in. And I was wandering around, and I found I stumbled upon a church that they were building. I sneaked through some construction, 
and they were they had bought a church. It looked like in England or France, and it was an old hand carved wooden chapel that they had actually bought and brought into this church in Japan and set up and all. I mean, so I was able to find a church, you know, and that's it. Just is something now comforting. I think it's important though that husbands and wives are on the same page there. I don't think it's a good uh, example. You know, if I were to sleep in and you were to get up and go to church every Sunday, I don't think that's the right kind of example our kids need these days. Mm-hmm. And um, during, while we were homeschooling, we used to um, pray with the children. We'd do what morning prayers with the children and you would lead and um, talk about that for a little bit. Well, we did. We had a, we had some pretty good uh, uh time with the kids and we we actually went through several series of youth uh, bible books all the bible stories i mean even from when they were really young the picture books uh and then the more uh text based books that talked the longer parts of the stories and the meanings of the stories and all of that so i mean our kids we had well morning prayers and then we would always do something at lunchtime uh, if I were there or not, if I were in town or not, or working or something, we would always do that. And I think the consequences of that are that um, our kids have a great foundation. And even if they don't go to church regularly now in their lives or at a period during their lives, they will always know where to go and what to do and what really is the, you know, will get them back centered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so um, for us anyway, um, prayer was an important part and and a shared faith was um, a very important part of our married life and um, continued. And um, the church that um, we mentioned at the bottom of the road has the most fantastic choir, right? Bar none. They they are... Bar none. (laughs) Yeah, they... Well, they're probably the best church choir I've ever experienced, yeah. or at least close up firsthand. I mean, we've mm-hmm. we heard the choir singing at Canterbury Cathedral once for a Christmas service, which was quite awesome. But then there were, you know, there were thousands of people there, and we had no idea where in the building the choir were. We could just hear them. But this every Sunday, we get to watch these twenty-four people sing, you know, six and eight-part harmonies mm-hmm. to Schubert. And different, you know, religious uh, songs and stuff. Yeah, 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 it's absolutely amazing. And we actually went to um, Westminster Abbey as well and saw a visiting choir from Dallas um, do Even Song, and uh, they were pretty good actually. They were from the Church of the Incarnation. But I still, I'm still biased by our church. With our church, I think they they do a fabulous job. And, they do. Um, well, and I, they're allowed. They're allowed to. They have a, the choir director Nigel is just incredible. I mean, yeah. he does he does a fantastic job. And then all of them, all of the choir must be must be school musicians. They have to yeah. be and professionals. I'm sure in mm-hmm. some sort, some kind, because they practice a lot. Well, we're coming close to the end of our um, first segment here, and I've been talking to um, my husband, my blue-eyed cowboy, Larry McNenny. Yeehaw! And, uh, yeehaw! And we've been talking about um, adjusting to actually living in England versus uh, visiting England. We've been talking about the importance of our faith 
and um, praying together as a family, as a homeschooling family and as a couple. And um, when we get back, um, he's going to be telling us about how we met his version of the story. I think I've, I've alluded to my version of the story several times. The true times. version, the real yes, version. Yes, you're, you're going to be telling the true version of the story. And um, so we'll be back in about 90 seconds. So go get yourself um, another cup of tea and um, some hugs and kisses from your loved one. And don't go far. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler. And we'll be right back after these. Why do I feel so lousy? Why are my medications working? Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. The author of the book, Help My Body is Killing Me, solving the connections of autoimmune disease to thyroid problems, fibromyalgia, depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better. To make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on Togginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginet. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, we're back and we've talked about um, the most difficult thing about adjusting to life here. And now I'm going to ask you, what are you enjoying most about life here? What am I enjoying most about life here? Uh, I'm enjoying getting to know you again (laughs) without four children uh, underfoot or four grown children. Mm-hmm. coming in and out of the doors all the time unexpectedly. I mean, we have a lot of time together um, and a lot of time individually in our own parts of the apartment here, knowing the other ones in there. And uh, it's nice being able to <clears throat> hold hands and not having somebody run up and run in between you trying to grab your attention and all of that for a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did that, just... did that for 20-some-odd years. Yeah, I know. And, and um, thinking back on it, when you and I got married, within the year, we had our first child, and within just a few months, I was pregnant. So I think our our um, consciousness was always on another, an addition to our family. Yeah. So we really didn't have an awfully long time, just the two of us together. And in a way, it was kind of scary thinking that we were just going to be here by ourselves. But Malia was here for the first three months, so we kind of eased our way, and then she went off to school and. Uh, you know, it, it's just kind of like getting, yeah, you're right, getting to know each other again. I think it, it must be that way for everybody, I guess, when their kids go away, the yeah. emptiness, because I find that each time Aaliyah comes home for a weekend and she goes back, it takes, you know, four, five, six hours just to kind of calm back down. Just hours, though. Yeah, yeah, just a few <laughs> hours. You know? Just a few hours, and I always have to move a bit of furniture. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, since it's Valentine's week and we're going to be celebrating our Valentine's this coming weekend, why don't you tell everybody the story about our meeting? And you can give a little bit of background maybe about, um, you know, Pollyanna, perhaps? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, ever since I was a young boy, all I, I, I always wanted to see the world. Once I decided that football was too rough a sport for me to be in, I decided that I wanted to see the world. And I got into the music business and was very fortunate to have been uh, moderately successful and toured the world and traveled. Uh, I also, when I was young... Uh, saw the movie Pollyanna and the Parent Trap, the original version with Haley Mills, and I was smitten with her. I thought she had the best accent, uh, so I always was kind of infatuated with the English accent. Um, when I was working for Ozzy Osbourne in 19, I guess it was 83, we were due to do an album in New York. Actually, we were going to do the album in the Bahamas, but we were rehearsing in New York, and Ozzy changed his mind halfway through rehearsals for the album and decided that he didn't want to go to the Bahamas to do the album. He wanted to come back to England to a studio that he had been he had done his previous album at and do it there. And in my suitcase were Hawaiian shirts and shorts and sunblock for the Bahamas. So we flew to London and Checked in, uh, Bobby Thompson and Tommy Aldridge and I shared a flat in uh, Gloucester Road. And Sharon called me up and said, here's Ozzy's credit card. Go, <clears throat> I reserved you a car, a Europe car hire up there by Victoria Station. So I went and picked up to go rent a car. And <clears throat> you waited on me. This beautiful English woman came up and said, can I help you? And I said, I'm here to pick up a car, and I gave her the information. And she disappeared with the credit card and came back a few minutes later and said, I'm sorry, we don't have the Ford Granada that you've reserved because we were going to keep it for two and a half months. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to have to give you this BMW 5 Series instead for the same price. <laughs> and I could tell that you weren't real happy about that. I think your boss had said, we have to give him a car. So we were quite happy about it, and I was with the drummer in, in one of the roadies, and so we drove off, but as we were leaving, I realized that I had fallen in love over the counter looking at you, and for the next two weeks, we drove to rehearsal every day in a studio on the other side of London, and I must have driven Bobby and Tommy crazy because I would say, I've got to go back and ask that girl out. I, I, I don't know what to do. I really didn't feel like I was kind of in the same caliber as you. And about two weeks later, uh, we were driving around. It was Sunday and it was hot. It was in the summer. It was June or so. And it was hot. And the car was dirty. And we were looking. They don't have car washes over here where you can go put a dollar's worth of quarters in and go wash your car. There are none of those that I've ever seen over here. So I said, well, look, they must have a car wash at, at the car hire company where we picked up the car. Maybe we take it back over there and they'll wash it for us. This was a Sunday. And sure enough, 
you were working and you said, okay, well, I'll take it downstairs and get them to wash it for you. So you did. And while you were gone, I asked one of the other girls there behind the counter about you. I said, are you, is she married? And they said, no. And I said, do you know if she's seeing anybody? And they said, I don't think so. And I asked one of the girls, I said, do you think she would go out with me? And she said, I don't know. Maybe she might. So you came up, brought the car back, your beautiful smile, and we left, and we drove around the corner, and I told Tommy and Bobby to stop the car, and I got out of the car and went to the nearest phone box, and I called back to the car hire company and got you on the phone, and I asked you out, and knowing that you would remember me, because I just walked out the door, and I was surprised when you said yes, and so we went out on the Wednesday, and we went to, I took you to uh, um, oh, Mr. Chow's here in London over in Knightsbridge, one of the best Chinese restaurants in town, plug, plug. And then we went to Stringfellows, which was a discotheque, which I, I'm not a great dancer, but we went there because it sounded like something fun to do. And you know, I was trying to be Jack the Lad and flash a bit. So we went there and had a good time, I think, had a drink and danced a bit. And then on the way home, I asked you, I took a taxi, I had a taxi, and I was going to take you home back to where you were living. And on the way home, I asked you if you would like to go out on the Friday night, two nights later. And you said, yes. I said, well, let's go someplace you've never been. And you said, well, I've never been to Paris. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I shouldn't have asked that. So... Uh, the next morning I got up and I made arrangements as quick as I could and on Friday well actually it was on the Saturday I took you to Paris for the for the day and so we met in London fell in love in Paris and then when we married we honeymooned in Rome there you go Yeah. and funny enough while we were in Rome on our honeymoon we threw coins in the Trevi Fountain as the tourists want to do. Mm-hmm. And we just went back this summer, 27 years later, and darned if those coins are still there. <laughs> well, I don't, they may not be you the same know. ones. Yeah. But it was, we did go back, we did go back to, the, to Rome uh, and took our 19, now 20 year old daughter back with us for yes, the experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so there you've got it, straight from the horse's mouth. And, you know, while hey, wait he a minute. was... Huh? You said the horse's mouth. Yeah, straight from the horse's you mouth. You called me a horse's mouth. Well, you're a cowboy. Okay. You're allowed to talk through the horse's okay. mouth. Okay. And um, while he was off, you know, while he'd driven away and was going to call me on the phone, or, of course, the girls in the office at um, Europe Car... Were just he asked all about you. He wanted to know if you were married. He wanted to know if you'd go out with him. And uh, so, of course, when the phone rang, I kind of knew it was you. But I thought, why didn't he ask me to my face? But you didn't. You were just too. You were just didn't want to be disappointed in front of me. You didn't want to break down in tears, did you? When I said, well, no. if you had said no, I would have been <laughs> insulted. I would have been humiliated in front of my friends and your whole staff. At least if you had said no when I phoned, I could have hung up and pretended I never even cared. Yeah, yeah. But I'm yeah, glad so. you said yes, because so, that was the best yes of my whole life, and it changed the rest of the course of my life. Yep, changed the rest of the course of my life, too. 
So, um, what about the children? Now we've got older children, and we have a few minutes, so we can talk a little bit about this. Um, how do, how do you feel when they come home? And they say, "Dad, I'm in love." <laughs> oh goodness! I mean, have well, they done it that often to you? Because I know, I know, I get it from Malia all the time. I don't think Simon does. Has Simon really admitted to ever being in love? Maybe with one of his girlfriends. Perhaps. Well, you, you, whether they say we're, I'm in love or something, you you know. Yeah. But you just kind of hope that, well, I hope you, you've got to think about it. You, there's no way that you can date somebody for a couple of weeks. You, know, you can be in love or think you're in love, but, I mean, not enough to marry someone or something like that. You've got to know somebody a bit. I mean, and it takes time. But, I mean, we were both in our 30s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't think people at 18, 19, 20 years old can can – not everybody. People do, but I don't think that they can easily beat. I mean, I think that what would I tell my kids? I would tell them to, to spend uh, time together, spend time apart, and sp- you know, sp- take, a, take a while to plan and think out your life. I don't, you know, don't fall in love with somebody and say that that's the person until you've been together and you've dated and you've argued and you've been, you know, you've had a lot of different situations to consider. Yeah, well, and um, with all my children, I've encouraged them, uh, obviously, as their teacher, to make lists of things that they want to do as as young people, you know, before they get married and start a family. And I always encourage them to, you know, remember this is what you want to do because, of course, mums are are their children's memories. You know, sometimes my children look at me and go, oh, I wish you hadn't remembered that or whatever. And it's true, though. You know, my one of my sons really wants to go to Australia, really wants to travel and do this. And, you know, if he settles down and gets married, all of that will go out the window. Is he prepared for that to go out the window? Those are the questions I find that, you know, we need to ask them, not say, oh, no, oh, no, I don't not just not just ask them, 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 because you're giving up getting 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 the bills and the good, the bad, so the and the ugly. The reality of life, yeah. Which, which unfortunately, I mean, it, it's a wish it wasn't like that, but it is. It is. And well, but here, here again, having a good relationship with God also helps. helps all of that. Well, we have to go on another break. I'm talking to my blue-eyed cowboy, Larry McNenny, and we're discussing um, love because this week was Valentine's Day. So go take another little break, grab another kiss or two, and come back for more of my handsome cowboy. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriended is on Toginet. 
Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, I'm back, and I'm talking to my blue-eyed cowboy, Larry McNinney, and we're talking about love and um Larry, you have something that um, I know you've written down and given to me in numerous cards over the years uh, that you read apparently every morning. Could you share that with us? Yeah, I, it's something I, it's part of my daily prayer that I include. Uh, it's Proverbs 31, and it's called The Good Wife. And it's something I believe in quite a bit. Uh, I'll read it to you. It's called The Good Wife. It is hard to find a good wife because she is worth far more than rubies. Her husband trusts her completely. With her, he has everything he needs. She does him good and not harm for as long as she lives. She looks for wool and flax and likes to work with her hands. She is like a trader's ship bringing food from far away. She gets up while it is still dark and prepares food for her family and feeds her servant girls. She inspects a field and buys it. With the money she earns, she plants a vineyard. She does her work with energy, and her arms are strong. She knows that what she makes is good. Her lamp burns late into the night. She makes thread with her hands and weaves her own cloth. She welcomes the poor and helps the needy. She does not worry about her family when it snows, because they all have fine clothes to keep them warm. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothes are made of linen and other expensive materials. Her husband is known at the city meetings, where he makes decisions as one of the leaders of the land. She makes linen clothes and sells them, and provides belts to the merchants. She is strong and respected by the people, and looks forward to the future with joy. She speaks wise words and teaches others to be kind. She watches over her family and never wastes her time. Her children speak well of her. Her husband also praises her, saying, There are many fine women. But you are better than all of them. Charm can fill you, and beauty can trick you. But a woman who respects the Lord should be praised. Give her the reward she has earned. She should be praised in public for what she has done. Well, that's part go. of that's part of my daily routine is is being grateful for what I have. And as my husband's just praised me in public. <laughs> See, that's wonderful, isn't it? Well, um, that's a perfect um, lead-in to um, my next um, point of discussion, which is in show business, your line of work, and generally 
today. There are a lot of breakups and divorces. So um, can you share with us maybe your secret to a long and happy marriage? Well, there, there are several things, I think. First off, I think that at any marriage, I think that I tell men now, I, I think one of the most important things is to marry somebody smarter than yourself. <laughs> I think, you know, I think you need to marry somebody that keeps you challenged, that keeps you active, that has their own interests and their well, you have to enjoy doing things together and, and seeing things at the sa- same way most of the time, you know, having own interests and have, being able to carry on regardless of the other one. You can't be so wrapped up with each other that you can't do things separately. Mm-hmm. Um, being on the road was really tough for a lot of people because coming home off the road, I mean, you're particularly in the older days, there were, there were no cell phones. There was no Skype. Uh, you were really only able to talk when you were in a hotel room or maybe backstage at the venue if somebody could get, get you. Uh, but nowadays, I mean, and, and so it, it tore apart a lot of marriages, uh, it just the, the separation, uh, coming home, and all of a sudden your your wife didn't know who the husband was because you hadn't seen each other for you know, three months or and you know things weren't things that were funny on the road were not funny at home and but nowadays it might be you know I don't know it, it's probably not a lot different but it is different in the fact that they've got Skype and you've got cell phones and, and the communication level is so different now than it used to be so I mean you know the the odds may have changed a little bit or the percentages but it's still you know being on the road or being away from home like we were uh, for eight or ten months of the year mm. is not a way to have a marriage or have a family. You you mm. can't do that. You know, it's 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 very difficult. Uh, some people do, but not many. Well, I was talking earlier um, a few weeks ago to um, Sandra Beck about military wives, and and they they are single moms for however long their husbands are off at war or. Um, you know, out of the country without them. And when they come home, you know, that's difficult. But, you know, I found, and I know that that is a similar situation, but I found that when you were out, um, it was work, but you, it was glamorous. There was much more glamour. I don't think there's any glamour in war. I think everybody will agree that the lives those soldiers lead aren't at all yeah. glamorous, whereas you had everything. I mean, you had your laundry was done for you, food was provided for you, you know, you traveled, you saw exotic places, you were with famous people, and it was very much more glamorous. And there's this this feeling of I was left at home, had to work, I had children, that wasn't at all glamorous, and you kind of feel as though you're left holding the baby, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was having a good time. <laughs> it was unfortunate that I, I mean, fortunately, I got most of my traveling done before we met. Yeah. But there were times when I did some tours while we were uh, when we had children, and uh, you know, it, it did. I, I was sorry that you weren't able to be there with me. I mean, there's no way you could bring four kids and on the road and do all of that, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, but. In, in some of my tours, some of the people that I worked for did seem like I was in battle, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> some more so than others, but most of it was not. I mean, it was it was a glamorous lifestyle. While not easy, it was, uh, uh, you know, we weren't being shot at and we, our lives were not on the line every day mm-hmm. like the soldiers, which mm-hmm. I would not never compare us to that. You no, know, so. no. 
No, but that life at home for the wife was, um, you know, sort of tough. But we got used to being on our own, and so it was difficult when, when you know, when you came home, all of a sudden, you know, there are there are two of us who are parents, and whereas before there was just one who was the parent, and you know, so that was tough. And so it was just as difficult for you coming home as it was for me, and um, it was good when you decided to come off the road. But that started a whole new <laughs> can of worms because I think it pretty much coincided with homeschooling and, you know, me giving up my job and you not having a full-time or, you know, sort of secure job. And Well, it was kind of, yeah, it happened at the right time for me and, and, and for the kids because they were at an age where they really needed me around, I think, I hope, mm-hmm. uh, more so. And, and, you know, we I think we we did a good job at raising the kids together. Uh, yeah. We complimented each other in, in so many ways. I think the kids would agree uh, for the most part. You know. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and we, we ended up, both of us, all the time at home. I mean, our children had the two of us at home for a lot of their lives. In fact, I think Malia, the youngest one, really doesn't remember a time when you went out to work as such mm-hmm. you know you mm-hmm. always worked at home so mm-hmm. that's a different experience don't you think for the children yeah well in nowadays there's a lot of parents work out of their home <clears throat> i don't i don't know what it would be like to have to go to an office anymore i mean i'm, I'm so used to working out of my home and and, I, and we do it you know like homeschool you we got up and you were homeschooling by seven thirty every morning it wasn't mm-hmm. so casual that they slept in and all that mm-hmm. But the same with you and me now, and me, all, uh, I guess, for the last 15 years or so. You know, I get up, read my paper, do prayers, whatever, and then, you know, go to work by 9 o'clock and work till 5 or 6 and stop. You know, sometimes nowadays, now that the kids are not here, you and I sometimes work till 8 or 9 at night just doing different things. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's kind of nice. And, and I think our children have appreciated the fact that we're always available. Whenever they need us, we're available, even on Skype, actually. They, they kind of Skype us at, at any time when they know that we're awake. And uh, we, we just drop everything that we're doing to talk. I think, I think uh, the, uh, the key to a successful marriage is also you have to develop a, a – it has to be trust. Mm. There's no way that you can be married to a person and not trust them completely. And that means – I knew that when I made a commitment to you that no other woman ever in my life other than my mother would ever attract me or tempt me or anything. I mean, you know, you're the woman that I fell in love with and that would, I want to spend my life with, not anybody else. Uh, and, and, you know, there was no other question. And so once I trusted myself, it was really easy to trust you. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you so much. I've been chatting to my blue-eyed cowboy, Larry McNinney, tour manager extraordinaire, raconteur of captivating stories, homeschooling empty nester of four, and victim of love at first sight. We talked about living, living, I keep saying that, we talked about living versus visiting England, how we met and how we keep the love fire kindled after 20-some-odd years and four children. 
thanks so much for taking time to talk to me on the air today and I'm sure we'll have a wonderful weekend together especially since our youngest is with us again for the weekend thanks in advance for my Valentine's meal tonight get the bubbly on ice <laughs> and I'll see you after my show my bye. pleasure I love you bye love you too well Paris, France, not Texas, is a romantic city, and I don't think anybody would contest that observation, right? As you just heard, my second date with my future hubs was to Paris. My youngest daughter, when we were talking about this, said, wasn't it awkward? I looked at my blue-eyed cowboy, we shrugged our shoulders, and I said, no, we'd known each other for, oh, three days. Just kidding. And no, it wasn't awkward. And that was back in the days of southern gentlemen, chivalry, chastity belts and all that honourable stuff. My youngest daughter went to Paris with her boyfriend while he was staying with us last summer. Chivalry, honour and southern gentlemen were in residence. To express their undying love for one another, they partook in a new tradition that wasn't around in the dark ages of our courtship. Either that or we were too busy picking ourselves up from falling in love to notice. On the evening of their 10th month anniversary, they went to the Pont des Arts, linking the left bank with the Louvre. There they found a spot and attached a padlock neatly etched by T with the proclamation T and M forever, August twelfth, 2011, to the railings of the bridge. They recorded the event with a few photographs, a lot actually, and then together flung the keys over the side and into the slowly flowing Seine below. This act will ensure that they return to the same spot to claim their padlock, or not, since the keys are in the mud at the bottom of the river, or at least look at it hanging at the bri- on the bridge, and ooh and ah and take more photographs of themselves several years older, but still very much in love. And that's romantic, isn't it? And that's what we did when we went back to Rome to the Trevi Fountain. So that brings me to the end once again for another week. I hope you enjoyed our love stories. This evening, as I said, we're going to have a romantic meal for two with candles and champers, then spend the weekend with our daughter. I'll be here same time, same place next week. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief. I miss you three in Texas. The hard-working staff at Toginet Radio, my scintillating guest and handsome cowboy, Larry McNenny, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Anne in Lindell, Hannah, Tina, Rosemary, and many others who are part of my growing audience. Don't forget to listen to my friend Sandy Fowler and Ali Laprete later on today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop. Doodle-loop. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginet. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.